Turn, if you would, tonight to 1 Corinthians 15. First Corinthians 15. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for this day. We're thankful, Lord, for this time together tonight. I pray that you would bless the effort to preach your word. I pray that you'd use it to be a help to us as a church family, as a church body. And God, I pray that uh, you would help us to recall this message in the times that we might need it. I pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a few weeks ago, you may remember that we began looking at 1 Corinthians 15, and we watched as the chapter began with Paul expressing some concern over the authenticity of the testimony of salvation by some there in the church of Corinth. And as we've dealt with the passage, we understand what seemed to motivate the questions or the doubts that he had, and that being in part some of the doctrine that they had adopted for their spiritual lives and some of the things that they had begun to hold to. And we know that the primary problem, the primary point that uh, uh, Paul was taking uh, or having contention with was the fact that there were some in the church who had come to this conclusion that there was no resurrection of the dead. And so as they came to this conclusion, we watched as the Apostle Paul in verse number 12 was going to challenge their logic whenever he said, How say some among you there is no resurrection of the dead? And what I tried to point out to us two weeks ago was this, is that whenever we have a position and whenever we take a position or a stand on a particular subject, it is allowed of others to question our logic. How did we come to the conclusion that we have come to and we need to know why we believe what we believe and how we have come to these conclusions. We can't just say, well, because, or this is what I've always been taught, or this is the position of the church. We need to have a biblical basis for what we believe. And then last week, in light of the resurrection and how they were falling away from that doctrine, we watched as the Apostle Paul explained some things that if there is no resurrection of the dead, then that means these things are also true. And so he went on to explain that if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ did not rise, that our preaching is in vain. He said their faith was in vain, that they themselves as the teachers and the preachers were liars and that they were to be pitied. And I said, as Paul laid all that out for them, there is no doubt that they did not really believe all those things to be true. And so what became clear was this, is that they had not thought out their position all the way through. It seemed to make sense initially. It seemed to sound all right, but it was clear they had not thought everything through. And so the challenge for us then was this, is that if we're going to have a position, we need to think it all the way through. Make sure that it can withstand the scrutiny that it will come under whenever people begin to challenge what it is we think. So many times we just throw things out there and very quickly... It is obvious that we have not thought it through and that we haven't really looked at it from as many angles as possible. And so it is something that we need to do to, to, to think it through so that we know what is going on when we're challenged. So that being said, tonight I want to start with a thought that is related to the message but is not related to the text. All right? I don't know if you even care, but I'm just saying... I'm going to give you a thought that is related to the message, but not to the text, and that is this. How many of you have ever seen an in-ground swimming pool? 
You've all seen them, right? Of course we have. And here's what you know of most in-ground swimming pools. You have the shallow end at one end, and then on the other end you have the deep end, correct? Okay, and so as that is set up, as it is configured, everyone that I've ever seen that has been made this way, here's what you have. You have the shallow end on one end, the deep end on the other end, and there is a pretty rapid slope taking you from the shallow end to the deep end. So very quickly your head is above water, and then the next thing you know, you are bobbing under the water and your head is underwater. All right? That is how the scripture seems to work sometimes. In the first few verses of chapter 15, my head was above water. All right? I understood it, made sense, felt as though I could explain it, felt as though we could all leave here with something that was helpful, something that was challenging. But by the time we get to our text tonight, guess what it does? It takes a sharp slope downward, and the scripture gets deep, quick. So much so that, spiritually speaking, you can find yourself underwater, and your head underwater, and you grasping for the surface, and you gasping for air, trying to make sense of what the scripture has declared. So tonight, I'm just going to say right up front that tonight's message, and probably the next few messages... They may not answer every question you've got. Like when you get down to verse number 29 and he starts writing about baptizing for the dead. Okay, That's going to present some questions that not everybody is as solid on as we might want them to be like me. Okay, And so if, if you look ahead and you say, Brother Kyle, I really want to preach that passage because I know what I'm talking about. You have been given your platform now, okay, to come to me after the service tonight or after the service this Sunday and say, that's the passage I want to teach, and, and I'm going to give you free reign once you prove to me that you know what you're talking about, okay? Until then, here's what we're going to do. We're going to have an agreement between us, and it's really not optional, okay? The agreement will consist of this. I'm going to do the best I can. I'm not going to answer every question that, that a person may have, but I would rather remain silent on some issues that I don't understand than to say something just to fill up some space that would most likely be wrong. All right? So you can't make me say anything I don't want to say. All right? So that all being said, now we're getting to the message eight minutes later. All right? Tonight I want us to think about this. I think we know this to be true, and that is this, is that sometimes the smallest of things can remind us of very significant events and very significant moments. Would you agree with that? That very small things can serve as reminders of very significant moments and events in our lives. Just to illustrate it very quickly, we have a tradition in our home. I don't know how it began, why it began, where it began. But no matter where we go by way of a vacation, we like to buy a magnet with that place's name on it so that we can stick it on the refrigerator and every time we see that magnet it reminds us that we've done a vacation there so you might look at our refrigerator and say what's up with all the junky magnets well i understand that it may not mean something to you but it means something to us 
In our house, we have a little mason jar located somewhere in the house. I don't know where it's at right now, but it's got some sand and some seashells in it. You might look at that and say, what is up with sand and seashells? Well, that's one of Susie's things, all right? She likes to collect seashells when we go to the beach, and she likes to bring back sand. It's awkward when you're going through security, but nonetheless, you you bring back the sand, you bring back the seashells, and, and you stick them somewhere in the house, and that reminds us of the vacations we've enjoyed at the beach, okay? So those would be just a couple of examples from our house. You may not even notice them, or if you did, you may not realize the significance of it. Probably in your house, you have things that remind you of certain events, of certain moments that are important to you, that are special to you, whatever it may be. Now, tonight we'll come back to that in several minutes. But one more thing, and you're going to say, my goodness, you're beating around the bush. No, I'm not. All this serves a purpose, all right? One more thing. How many of us tonight know that in Ephesians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul explains to the believers in Ephesus that our greatest battle is not a battle against an enemy that we can see with our eyes or touch with our hands. The Apostle Paul explained that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but rather we wrestle against the principalities. We wrestle against the powers. We wrestle against the the spiritual powers and, and, and the darkness of this world. The enemy that you and I face, the enemy that you and I struggle with the most, it is not physical, it is not mental, it is not emotional. It is a spiritual battle that can affect all the other aspects of our lives. But our greatest struggle in life is a spiritual battle with an enemy we cannot see. You understand this, right? The Apostle Paul is the one who gave the analogy. The Apostle Paul is the one who explained this, who described it, who who let us know what our enemy is. It is a spiritual battle against the, the rulers of this world, the darkness of this world, the principalities and the powers and things of that nature. Now, I know that there are some people who would say, well, that just sounds ridiculous. Well, those would be people who are not Bible believers. All right. So for those of us who are Bible believers, we would agree with the Apostle Paul that our greatest struggle is a spiritual struggle, though sometimes it can manifest itself in other areas of our lives. So that being said, I I want us to think about this because of where the text is headed and where we're going to be going in just a couple of moments. But I want us to think about this, that tonight, as smart and as aware and as discerning as we believe ourselves to be, We have no idea what kind of spiritual battles are taking place in this world as we speak. You and I do not begin to know what people are dealing with. You and I do not begin to know what nations are dealing with. We don't begin to know what families are dealing with, what churches are dealing with. It doesn't matter, again, how smart and full of discernment we believe ourselves to be. We do not begin to know what kind of battle is taking place in the spiritual realm of this world that we are incapable of seeing. Now, why mention that? Well, tonight I want us to look in verse number 25. We're going to skip around a little bit, and I'm doing this because it helps me. All right, it helps me. But in verse number 25, this is the Apostle Paul speaking, certainly not my words, but he said this, For he must reign 
till he hath put all enemies under his feet. All right? For he must reign. So whenever he, Paul writes of he must reign, who is that he a reference to? Well, immediately we might say something like this. Well, that's a reference to God. And that is true in the most technical of terms because of the Trinity. But the reference here in verse number 25 seems to be a reference to Jesus Christ or God the Son. All right? So in verse number 25 it says, For he must reign or he must rule. He must be the one who is over things till he, that being Christ, uh, God the Son, till he has put all his or all enemies under his feet. Now, friends, that sounds like a battle to me. All right? That is a battle that is taking place, and that is a war that is being waged, and a war that is raging, and and that would be on the spiritual level of things. And what Paul said is this, is that he, that being Christ, must reign, rule, be in authority, till he hath put, not present tense, but future tense, till he hath put or made all of his enemies to be under his feet, until Christ is victorious. Now, you and I, we might already begin to squirm a little bit. We may already begin to question that a little bit. And we may say something like this. Listen, the victory's already been won. The victory's already been accomplished. I understand what we say, but we cannot deny the words of the Apostle Paul that there still appears to be a battle that is taking place in the ranks of this world that we're unable to behold. All right? So he said that he, God the Son, must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. Now notice what he said next. The last enemy. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Again, we would say that death has already been defeated, would we not? I mean, it's what we hear people say all the time. Maybe it's one of those things we've just said and we've not thought it all the way through. Maybe it's just one of those things that we heard another preacher say and it sounded good and so we've just kind of taken it and run with it. But, but we've said things like this. Death is already defeated and death is already taken care of and we don't have to worry about death, etc. But Paul said that death continues to remain an enemy that has yet been destroyed by Christ. Now, I don't want us to get too hung up on this or too nervous about this because I understand that we view things by faith in a future tense, but whenever he says that the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death, okay, first of all, here's what we know an enemy to be. An enemy is one who stands in opposition or who opposes someone or something, correct? I mean, that's what an enemy is. Whenever you think of an enemy, you do not think of a friend or an ally. You think of a foe or someone who stands in opposition to you. Okay, so what Paul is suggesting is this, is that death continues or remains to be an enemy even of mankind, even of those who are saved. Now, if we weren't maybe a little bit reserved tonight based on everything I've already said, 
Some people may say that's not true. So let me just throw some things out real quick for consideration and let's just see if it makes sense. Tonight, if I were to ask you how many of you want to die tonight, how many of you would raise your hands? Right, none of us, correct? I mean, I don't want to die. Now, if I said how many of us are ready to die tonight, I would hope that all of our hands would go up. But there's a vast difference between being ready to die and wanting to die. I personally, as it stands right now, I do not view death as a friend or an ally of mine. I view death as an enemy that looks to oppose me, that looks to stand against me. I still have a lot that I want to do in this life. Somebody says, well, that's just immaturity on your part. So be it. Chalk it up to immaturity. I want to live for a while, okay? I'm enjoying the process and all that I'm engaged in, okay? Uh, I, I think sometimes, if we're honest... Though we like to say things, well, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. And, and I understand that that scripture, you and I don't always believe that, do we? Let's just be honest. We don't always believe that death is a precious thing, though it may be viewed that way in the eyes of the Lord. You talk to someone who's just buried their spouse and they don't believe that it's a beautiful thing, especially if it was something that was unexpected. You talk to someone who has just buried their child or buried their parent and it's not something that they consider to be a precious thing. We still grieve, we still weep, we still hurt, we still go through all these emotions. I know not as though the world does, but I'm trying to show us something that death is not something that most people consider to be a friend or, or an ally or something they look forward to. So it makes sense that the Apostle Paul would say that the last enemy that shall be defeated is death, that there is coming a day when it will be completely conquered and destroyed and defeated by Christ. All right. So in verse number 27 or rather in verse number 24, okay? We'll try to summarize all this in the next few moments. But he says, Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom of God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. So now in verse number 27, For he hath put all things under his feet. He hath put under put all things under whose feet? God the Father hath put all things under His, God the Son's, feet. Now, I'm just going to say this one more time. You and I cannot grasp the Trinity. You understand this? You know, uh, uh, sure we can. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Yeah, that's pretty basic explanations of the Trinity, okay? Uh, so we don't fully understand how all this works, and our minds don't fully grasp it. But he is saying that he, the Father, hath put all things under his, the Son's, feet. But when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest or it is clear that he is accepted or exempted, which did put all things under him. So what in the world does that mean? It means this, that whenever God gave the Son all authority, he gave him all authority except for himself. Because it's clear that he was exempt from being under the authority of his son, Christ. And I know you're thinking, how thrilling is this? 
just notice in verse number 28, he said, And when all things shall be subdued unto him, that being the Son, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Now at this point, are you like, what? Everybody but one. Brother Mike, I'm going to have you teach the next few lessons. <laughs> okay. All right, this is good. I know Brother Mike likes this, I, 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 and I mean it. I, I know that he does, and I'm glad that he does. But here's what Paul is saying. There's coming a day that the Son is going to give back everything to the Father that the Father gave him to be in control of, to be in authority of. And so there's going to be this heavenly transaction that takes place by way of authority, and God the Son is going to give back to God the Father everything that God the Father had entrusted him with. Okay, why does that matter? Well, remember, all this is being written in light of the resurrection. Every bit of this is being written in light of the resurrection. So in verse number 25, we see that there is still a spiritual battle taking place, a battle that we cannot begin to grasp, that we cannot begin to understand. And the last enemy that will be defeated by Christ is the, the issue of death. So in verse number 20, notice what Paul said before he gets down to that. He said, but now is Christ risen from the dead. He doesn't ask that in the statement of a question. He's not asking their opinion. He is stating this emphatically. This is a proven fact. In the chapter, it's already been discussed how over 500 had seen him at one time. The majority of them were still alive, that the disciples had seen him, that Paul had seen him. So, so Paul is not trying to determine whether or not Christ has risen. He said Christ has risen from the dead. It's that simple. So in verse number 20, he said this, Of Christ, who is in authority, he said, And become the firstfruits of them that slept. I'd like to ask you tonight, when was the last time you remember discussing the firstfruits with anyone? Can you remember the last time you were sitting around saying, Oh, the firstfruits. Oh, that would be the firstfruits, right? I'll just present it to you from an honest, transparent standpoint, okay? I never talk about first fruits. It's not a part of my life. It's not a part of anything that I'm uh, associated with, okay? So I read in verse number 20, but now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. And, and, and I don't know the first thing about a first fruit other than what I have to go back and reread and reteach myself and relearn as it relates to the first fruit. So what was the first fruit? Well, the first fruit was the first portion of the harvest taken during offer or during uh, the harvest season, and it was presented to the Lord as an offering or, or as a presentation there in the tabernacle or there in the temple 
And so though it is something that you and I would not be real familiar with or talk about on a regular basis, in their day, in their culture, they would have understood what a first fruit was, that it's the first part of the crops that have come in, that the harvest has come in, that you bring to the Lord, that you present unto Him. But here's the thing that I was reminded of as I studied as it relates to the first fruit. You know what the first fruit was also a representation of? It was a representation of a promise of more. This is the first, but I want you to know there will be more following. This is not it. So a farmer, a person with the crop, what they would do is, is they would bring in their offering of the first fruit, whatever the portion of that may be. But as they brought in their portion of the first fruit, that was also signifying a promise, there will be more presented, listen now, at a later time. This is not it. So what is he doing? He is drawing in their minds a picture that Christ is risen from the dead and he is the first fruits of them that slept. What does that mean, them that slept? He's talking about those who have died in Christ. So what is Christ? Christ is the first one who has risen from the dead, who will stay risen from the dead, because Lazarus died again, because Jairus' daughter died again. All right, but Jesus Christ, when he rose from the dead, he rose victorious over the grave, and he was the first one to do so. He was the first fruit. But what did Paul say? Paul said that as a result of him being the first fruit of the risen or of them that slept, I want you to understand this isn't it. There will be more. You like that? I like that. It's it's like the promise of the Lord saying, hey, listen, we're not done. We've just gotten started. All right. So the first fruit is Christ who is risen from the dead and become the first fruit of them that slept. So then some good doctrine is explained in verses 21 and 22. He said, For since by man came death, that being Adam, we see that in verse number 22. For since by man came death, by man, that being Christ, came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order... So what is Paul saying in verse number 23? He is saying this, All who are in Christ, they shall be made alive. It's going to happen. It is going to happen. It is going to take place. But he said in verse number 23, But every man in his order. So there's going to be a system to this. There's going to be an order to this. You have to love the order of God in the Scripture, do you not? Even the resurrection is going to be an organized process. It's going to look like mass chaos to the world when it happens, but it's going to take place exactly as God has designed it and laid it out. So he said in verse number 23, but every man in his own order, this is going to happen in a process and it's going to happen quick. Isn't that awesome? In the twinkling of an eye at the sound of the trumpet, it's going to happen, but it's going to happen just as it's been designed to do. And again, he said, Christ, the first fruit, 
Afterward, they that are Christ at his coming. Okay, so Christ was first, and then at Christ's coming, his second coming, his second appearing, that is when those who are dead in Christ are going to rise, who are after the first fruits. Then in verse number 24, then cometh the end when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God. That's when Christ shall take it to God, and that is when the transaction shall take place. Okay? So you're sitting here going, well, yeah, that's easy enough to understand. I know, but you weren't with me for hours in the office going, what in the world? Okay, so here's what we've got. We've got a spiritual battle taking place in this world that Christ is very much a part of and engaged in. And the last enemy that Christ is going to defeat shall be death. When all this has happened, when all this has taken place, when everything has occurred as it's supposed to, and and Christ is victorious, then here's what's going to happen. He's going to present it to God the Father, who is then going to take what God the Son has presented unto him, and it'll be a final transaction. But until then, here is what Paul is saying, laboring the point. Friends, there is a resurrection. How do we know? Because Christ is the first fruit of the resurrection. His resurrection was a guarantee of more to come. Now as they heard that, I don't know what they envisioned in their mind. I don't know if they saw a dill of corn. I don't know if they saw some barley in their mind. I don't know if they saw some wheat in their mind. I don't know what they had in their mind whenever he began talking about first fruits. But here is what could happen. Something as simple as the mention of a first fruit could remind them, hey, First fruit. He was the first fruit. That means more. Okay, when we die, when our loved ones die, when our friends die, when when those we are close to have died, here's what we can be reminded of and know for sure. He was the first fruit. There's more coming. They were saved. They're going to rise from the dead. This is not the end, even though we got off track on our doctrine and started thinking it was the end. All right. Now, you might be sitting there going... Let's get to something that actually helps me. I want us to think about something. It's simple. I know it's simple. Christ rose from the dead. It's profound, but it's simple. Yeah. First fruits don't mean anything to me. I mean, I'm thankful for this, the illustration given, but that doesn't mean anything to me. You know what's real simple and real concise and real easy for me to remember? Christ rose. Okay, see, I can remember that. Christ rose. So it's kind of like a little magnet that it reminds me of something significant. Christ arose, I'll arise. I'll arose. That's not the right way to say it, but do you understand what I'm trying to communicate? It's simple. It's like a little seashell in some sand. Okay, it's simple, yet it serves as a very important reminder to me. 
Jesus Christ arose, and what that immediately reminds me of, without remembering all the doctrine behind it, though it would be wonderful if I could remember all the doctrine behind it, if I can't remember anything else, I can remember He arose, so therefore one day I too will rise from the dead, because He was the first fruit. there's more coming, He has promised it, and I am part of the more that's coming later. He arose. There are others who are going to rise. So all that means is, you know, as far as a reminder is for me, uh, as far as I'm concerned, is this is, okay, he arose. My grandparents will arise. One died 23 years ago. The others died about eight years ago and five years ago. And and, and, and I don't understand all this, and I'll never be able to explain it to some people's satisfaction, but here's what I can remember. He arose, guess what? They will too. That's all I have to remember. He arose, so will they. This is not the end. Brother Kyle, you, you mean to tell me I hurried home got dressed for church, and came here to hear you say, this isn't the end? Yes. Because we need the reminder. I need the reminder. You know why? Because sometimes the strongest of Christians, perceivably, wrestle with the reality of the resurrection. Well, I never. Okay, okay, good, 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 good. I'm glad you never. But you're not done yet either. I'm just saying, several years ago, I heard a preacher preaching, and I don't even know the preacher's name. I was up at a fellowship meeting in Iowa somewhere, and I heard this preacher preaching, and he was diagnosed with cancer. And you know what he said his very first thoughts were? Fear. Because death is still an enemy. Now he said he got victory over it. But you know what his very first thoughts were? They were thoughts of fear. Why? Because death is not a friend. And, and, and when you begin to think about death, you can't help but entertain some other questions. Like, is this real? Or, or, or have I just been believing a lie? What's going on here? Because Satan would love to put doubts in our minds in this spiritual battle that, that we're engaged in. So I need to be reminded, hey, listen, it's simple, it's concise, and, and probably to some people it wouldn't satisfy them, but I just got to remember, he arose, he's the first fruit, there's more to come, they're going to rise too. It's not the end. And so whenever it's my time to die, I may not be looking forward to it, it may be happening before I'd like the process to take place. But I can remember. He arose. It's kind of simple theology, Kyle. I know, but it's what the Bible teaches. He arose. There's more to come. 
I'll rise one day. He'll be victorious. It's okay. We need the reminder sometimes, as simple as it may seem, he did it, and because he arose, he will be victorious. Listen, over the final enemy, our death, and you and I have absolutely nothing to worry about. Again, you may say, never even entered my mind to worry about it. It, it, it very well may happen at some point, and, and thus be reminded we're not the spiritual giants we think we are. I'm just saying, some may need it tonight because Satan may be going after the thought process. You know, it's a spiritual battle trying to affect the mind, trying to affect the emotions, trying to affect the outlook. There may be some tonight who are actually helped by this simple reminder that they came to church for. And it may be that in the future, you need this more than you thought you needed it tonight. But I'm thankful that the Apostle Paul said, you know what, we're not going to rush through this. We're going to take them down to the deep end. You know what I mean? And we're going to make him think. We're going to make him figure this stuff out. Now, I don't appreciate it, but I'm glad he did it because it gives me a better understanding of what's happening, of what's taking place, of what's being done and what's already been done on our behalf. And I'm thankful for just that little simple reminder. He did, so I will. He did. And every child of God who has ever lived will rise again because they are a part of what is after the first fruit. All right? Let's all stand tonight and bow our heads for a word of prayer. Fathers, we come to you this evening. I pray that you'd help us. Lord, to be reminded, I know, of a simple truth, but to be encouraged by it as well. And Lord, I know that I know that some don't need this tonight. I, I understand that. It doesn't even bother me that some don't need it tonight. But Lord, some may need it in the days to come, in the weeks, months, or years to come. And so I pray that you just help us to be reminded when we need this. That no matter how Satan may try to make us doubt, no matter how uh, often he may try to, to get us hung up on our, our doubt and our disbelief. I pray that you'd help us to be reminded of the simple truth of who you are and what you accomplished and what that means for us. I pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.